I'm Matt Franklin, and today on Not Cleared, Morgan and I talked to Colonel Grant Newsom and Jim Fennell about Taiwan and basically talked to them to get an overview of the current situation going on there, the increased tensions between Taiwan and China, and just generally speaking, why the United States should care about this conflict that has been brewing for the past couple weeks and has intensified over the past couple weeks. So before we talk to Grant and Jim, Morgan is going to just give us a brief overview of the region and historically what has gone on there between the United States and Taiwan. Today we're talking about Taiwan and why we as Americans should care about it. This started last week when President Biden said during a a town hall that we would defend Taiwan, and then the White House walked it back a few hours later. There have been increasing reports about Chinese aggression towards Taiwan. In 2020, there were 380 air incursions where Chinese jets were flying in Taiwan's air defense zone. And so far for this year, there have been 600. The Chinese are really aggressive in, in the things that they're saying about Taiwan. They're constantly talking about, quote, reunification and have said that they will do it by force. So why, what does that even mean? Why are they talking about reunifying? Well, China was ruled by a dynasty until 1912, and then the Republic of China was created. In 1927, a civil war broke out between the Republic of China and Mao, the communist, the communist led by Mao. And so in 1949, the Republic of China government, led by um, Chiang Kai-shek, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, fled to Taiwan, which is off the coast of mainland China. And then Mao took over mainland China and said, and created the People's Republic of China. So for since that point, we've had two separate governments that both claim they're the only legitimate government of China. And the United States backed Taiwan in 1949, and the Soviet Union backed the PRC. And then in 1979, the United States switched sides. We said that we are going to diplomatically recognize the the PRC. And we sort of left it vague that we, we don't, we recognize that China thinks that they have sovereignty over Taiwan, but we don't recognize that sovereignty. And we have had we have not had any diplomatic relation, relations with Taiwan since 1979. So during that same year, the Congress passed a law saying we we're obligated to sell Taiwan weapons, um, but we haven't had an embassy there. So instead we have something called the American Institute in Taiwan. And this has been common. Many other countries, there's only 15 out of 193 countries in the entire world that recognize Taiwan as its own country. Um, Trump started to reverse this a bit when he was president-elect. He spoke to the Taiwanese leader, which was the first and only direct conversation between a president or president-elect and a Taiwanese leader. And isolating Taiwan in this way is really problematic for them. And China does it through a variety of means. For example, in 2018, they said any airlines that flew in China at all, so most airlines, had to change the name so you can't fly into taipei taiwan you have to fly into taipei taipei as if it's a province of china um which the administration at the time basically said screw you and let i mean the airlines could do what they wanted but i mean it who is china to tell airlines what they have to list their countries as um and this mostly became an issue in in or a good example of this issue is in 2020 during coronavirus back in in the spring which feels like 8000 years ago do you remember that video of the taiwanese journalist asking the world health organization leader why taiwan can't be in the who and he just was like oh i didn't hear your question but let's move on and then hung up on her mm-hmm. yeah um that's kind of the way that china exerts pressure on international organizations and other countries to not deal with taiwan which was to our detriment because they were not stupid. Like we were entrusting China's comments about coronavirus and they did a lot of aggressive track and tracing. So they didn't have the outbreaks that the rest of the world did. And they tried to communicate their 
information to the World Health Organization, which they were just ignored. So that's why it's called reunification. Um, they say that Taiwan can't be its own country, even though most of the citizens, there's 23 million people there, consider themselves Taiwanese. They don't consider themselves part of China. Um, this is a legitimacy issue for the communist regime. They really can't let it go. So to help us further unpack this, Morgan and I talked to Grant Newsom, who is a senior fellow with the center, and he has a lot of uh, previous military experience. So we talked to him about the strategic importance of Taiwan to China. And then after Grant, we're going to talk to Jim Fennell, who also has experience militarily talking about the significance of Taiwan to the United States. So we kind of get both sides of the picture for why the United States cares about defending Taiwan and why China cares so much about infiltrating them and conquering them militarily. So we are joined by a senior fellow here at the center, Grant Newsom, who has looked at these issues extensively. He spent 2019 in Taiwan studying their defenses. So Grant, could you explain why Taiwan is so important to China? Well, there's a couple reasons. Uh, first one is geography. Now, if you look at a map, you'll see Taiwan sitting about 90 miles off of the Chinese coast, but it's it is part of what is called the first island chain. And that's an, a chain of islands from Japan down to Taiwan to the Philippines and then on to Malaysia. And this effectively serves as a, a barrier to the Chinese military. So it makes it very hard for them to get out into the Pacific Ocean and to operate freely. And Taiwan sits right in the middle of that chain. So if China is to take over Taiwan, that it, um, it allows them free access for the Chinese military into the Pacific and beyond. And it allows them, for example, to send Chinese ships, submarines, aircraft uh, regularly up, uh, to, up towards Japan, um, in fact, all the time. So Japan would actually find itself surrounded by the Chinese military. And that's the first th time that has happened uh, since 1945, and the Chinese would love to be in a position to do that to Japan. Also, Japan is currently fortifying its southern islands, the Ryukyu chain that goes from the, the main islands of Japan all the way down to Taiwan. If China takes Taiwan or occupies it, it has then outflanked and gone around the back of those Japanese defenses. Also, from China's perspective, if it controls Taiwan, it can very easily uh, control the sea lanes and the air, uh, air routes through the South China Sea, uh, which is just to the, the south, southwest of Taiwan. And most, once again, most of Japan's uh, oil and trade flows through the South China Sea. So being able to interdict that, to cut it, is obviously attractive uh, to the, the Chinese. Plus, the Chinese can do the same thing with all transport to Korea. Uh, and that's a huge benefit from a military perspective uh, and a strategic perspective uh, to the Chinese. Uh, so that alone is a good reason to do it. But there's also a sort of a psychological reason or a political reason that uh, China wants to do it. And that is that uh, President Xi Jinping of uh, the guy who runs China, he's not a president, he's a dictator. Uh, he's never been elected to anything. And China's never had elections, but he wants to be able to say that he's the guy who was able to uh, retake uh, Taiwan and bring it back to China. And thus, that would, from his perspective, ensure his position in Chinese history. Of course, it is important to remember that Taiwan has never been part of the People's Republic of China. And in all of Chinese history, it was only for about 10 years uh, and that China sort of had control of Taiwan. So their claim that Taiwan has always been part of China uh, is basically a lie. Uh, also, Ta China uh, has having a lot of problems economically now, and there's uh, a lot of unhappiness over the virus, uh, etc. So what uh, these dictatorships like uh, Xi Jinping's China like to do is to cause an external distraction, cause trouble overseas that causes people to rally around the government and forget about uh, 
what's going on domestically. So that's another motivation for China. But the other reason why China really wants to go after Taiwan um, is the polit- say the external political effect, and this would be an effect globally. Because if you think about it, uh, what is the message that is sent if Taiwan uh, is taken by China? The message is that the United States, the world's greatest nation, could not prevent uh, the People's Republic of China from taking and capturing and imprisoning 25 million or 24 million free Taiwanese. The Americans couldn't stop it. Not the American military, nor the uh, all the threat of using American financial power and economic power against uh, China. That couldn't stop it. And American nuclear weapons couldn't stop the Chinese. So think about the message that that sends to every country in Asia and even worldwide. It's that, well, America is not as reliable or as strong as people thought. And on the other hand, China is. And China is the the powerful country that's rising. America is obviously on the decline. And you're going to find very quickly in Asia that many countries are quickly going to align with China, cut the best deal they possibly can. And worldwide, you're going to see this effect as well, particularly in Africa and Latin America, but also in Europe to some extent. So from China's perspective, that's a lot of upside uh, from taking Taiwan. And so combine these things, the geography, the domestic political purposes, and the, really the, the blow, the harm that this would do to the United States and its reputation worldwide, those are reasons why China really wants to get its hands on Taiwan and will do anything to get it. So Grant, you very clearly laid out the strategic importance of Taiwan, which can't be argued. Um, and recently, China has had a bunch of different, I guess, um, acts of military aggression, the hypersonic missile a few days ago, which you can argue was or wasn't directly um, trying to intimidate Taiwan. But a few weeks ago, China had that military exercise where a bunch of their planes flew over um, the Taiwan air defense zone. So is there a reason that you can think of that um, Chinese aggression towards Taiwan has really increased recently under Xi Jinping? Well, the Chinese are on a timeline. You know, they're not going to wait forever uh, before trying to take Taiwan. And that timeline has been running. Uh, One uh, very prominent uh, observer, the former head of intelligence for the U.S. Navy uh, in uh, in the Pacific, uh, Captain Jim Fennell, has he said 10 years ago that the 2020s, so this decade is the decade of concern. And he estimates that this is when all of the political forces, particularly in China, uh, will align and they will seriously consider and probably uh, make a move against Taiwan during this decade. Uh, So I think that this is what is going on. It's, It's not just a random thing. I think Taiwan does have a timeline, thus they've stepped up the pressure. Uh, on Taiwan. And it's these military threats that you've described and the the blood curdling uh, statements and propaganda being directed against Taiwan. Uh, If you just listen to it, you know, it's this, we're going to get you, we're going to take Taiwan. Uh, You know, when we do it, you know, we're going to drop nuclear weapons, you'll all be destroyed, etc. This, it's daily uh, that this is all sort of gotten um, amped up uh, in recent, recent years. And recent weeks, really. Uh, so, but when it's when an actual attack would happen, that's very hard to say. But China is preparing for it. They've been preparing for it for a couple decades at least, uh, and they do have the capability to think they might succeed. Uh, so, what we're saying is, to say you're turning up the heat, and the idea and the ideal from China's perspective would be to have Taiwan just give up. For Taiwan to think, well, we don't have any support from anywhere. We're not strong enough to resist. We might as well cut a deal or even well, surrender effectively to China. And that's what the, the PRC would like. But they are indeed willing to uh, attack Taiwan. And I think that say, this decade is the time to worry. And the, the current head of the Pacific uh, fleet, that's the, all the U.S. Navy in the Pacific, said before uh, Congress uh, the, other, uh, the other month, 
that he thought within, I think it was within five years that it was likely China would attack. So, you know, that's time is running uh, and that's the clock is running and that's what we're seeing. So if China were to attack Taiwan, um, does Taiwan have the ability, are they capable of defending themselves from China? And um, if they are, why does the U.S. need to be involved in protecting and safeguarding them? Well, Taiwan would have a hard time sort of holding out against China for, for very long. And that is because China's military has developed over the last 20 years into a very, very powerful force, particularly when directed against Taiwan. Taiwan's military has not correspondingly uh, improved uh, during that period. So without uh, really America backing that Taiwan would have uh, trouble over the, the long term. And when I say the long term, I mean, after a, a few weeks, it would probably be in a, a fair amount of trouble. Um, so from a purely mil- from the perspective of the military balance, who's got better military, a stronger military, uh, China has the advantage. It's not surprising. They're 1.4 billion people or so. Taiwan is 24 million. Uh, and Taiwan has also, has also suffered from 40 years of isolation. And that means that for about the last 40 years, the United States has had very little to do with Taiwan militarily. Uh, the Americans have grudgingly sold Taiwan some equipment, but they will not, uh, they will not train directly with the Taiwan Armed Forces. Uh, when Taiwan military come to America, they aren't even allowed to wear their uniforms. Uh, and that's a humiliating thing for the Taiwanese, of course. But also think about it. You know, your supposed best friend, the, the person you're expecting to protect you, they don't want to be seen in public with you because they're more afraid of, well, this other guy across the across the street. And it has a demoralizing effect, obviously, when you, you feel like you have no friends, you're alone. And it creates almost a sense of defeatism where you don't really want to spend the money and do what's necessary, say, to build up your defenses. And that's how Taiwan has been treated for all these years, despite having turned into a democracy uh, that is, is the, really the only Chinese democracy on earth and a very sort of a very livable, nice, free place with all the liberties that we take for granted. Uh, free press, freedom of speech, etc. So Taiwan feels, say, isolated, and that is hurting their defense. Uh, and America needs to break this isolation very quickly. And how would you do that? You would start training directly with the Taiwan military, and you'd find that the, the, the ripple effect of that on Taiwan psychology would be very good, both on the Taiwan military, uh, the Taiwan public at large would finally feel as if you know, somebody is actually is pretty likely to support them. And, they, and the Taiwan government would do more to improve its own defenses. Uh, the Taiwan, the best approach, of course, for Taiwan's defense is to make themselves a very tough nut to crack, uh, sort of the way Switzerland does. You know, there's a reason nobody attacks Switzerland, because it's uh, going to be too hard. And Taiwan could do that. They should do that. And the way you do that is with... Um, you know, lots of long-range precision weapons. These basically a missile that can go across the strait and crack a Chinese ship in half. Uh, a lot of those will cause a lot of trouble to an invasion force. Um, but that's just one example. But they also need to improve the, their military by treating the, the troops better because uh, the Taiwan government does not properly fund its defenses. The service in the military is like a life of hardship. So they're having trouble attracting recruits. And also, if you're not getting paid well, if you don't have air conditioning in your rundown quarters, well, you're not all that motivated. But it's so it's amazing the Taiwan military is as good as it does, but it needs to get a sort of a different pr- approach to defense. It needs to properly fund it and get organized the right way. In fact, you know, I used to be with the Marines. And when you go and visit the Taiwan Marine Corps, it reminds you of a U.S. Marine base in about 1980, so 40 years ago. And it's sort of like the Galapagos Islands where the Taiwan military has not really kept up uh, with the evolutionary advances uh, in military, uh, the the way you conduct uh, military operations, uh, the way you man and train and equip. Uh, In fact, if you consider Taiwan's defense strategy until just recently when they've been trying to revise it, 
very much resembled the way that we would have fought a war in the 1980s, as uh, operating from fixed positions, not very fast to move, uh, and using these weapons that really haven't we haven't used them for years. So Taiwan does need to turn itself into a, say a, a much more nimble, hard to detect, hard to locate uh, military, uh, say with the right kinds of weapons that can make uh, life for a Chinese invasion force very, very difficult. I mentioned missiles, but smart sea mines are another good example. Um, you know, sea mines, for example, these days, uh, you can actually sail, they can actually sail or sort of um, swim, use that expression, out hundreds of miles and they can go lie on the ground, lie on the bottom of the seafloor, wait for a certain kind of ship to come. And then they sort of activate and they go after the ship and sink it. Uh, it's a very scary technology that's developed, but it's very useful from a defensive position. So if you think of that tough nut to crack expression, that's a good way to put uh, how Taiwan's defense should be. And they know it, but it's taking them some time to get there. Uh, another expression used is the porcupine defense. Now, you know, porcupine really couldn't fight a lion, for example, straight up. But the lions don't want to get involved with a porcupine. That's just too, too, uh, causes too much pain. Okay, we are joined by Captain Jim Fennell, who is a retired naval officer whose most recent assignment was Director of Intelligence and Information Operations for the U.S. Pacific Fleet. So, Jim, we're just going to jump straight into it. Can you explain what the strategic significance of Taiwan is to U.S. interests? Uh, well, first of all, thanks for the invitation to uh, join your podcast. It sounds very exciting, new venture. Uh, in terms of the, the strategic impact of Taiwan, um, there's a, a military, I mean, as my background's in the military, there's clearly a military uh, significance to Taiwan. It's been called the unsinkable aircraft carrier because it's an island. Uh, and, and to explain that, it's Taiwan itself is in what they call the first island chain, which is basically the islands that come down from southern Japan. They're called the Ryukyu Islands. And then they, they touch into and go into Taiwan. And then from southern Taiwan, they go down into the Philippines and the Philippine archipelago and then down to Singapore. And all that water uh, to the west all those seas, the East China Sea and the South China Sea, uh, that's for the Chinese where they're operating routinely on a daily basis in both seas. Uh, and they've had a, a strategy to break outside of that. And one of the things that prevents them from being able to operate more freely in the Western Pacific, the Philippine Sea, is the island of Taiwan. And because it's a, it's a separate, essentially, country uh, with its own separate military, uh, the Chinese feel like they're uh, essentially corked in, that, that Taiwan's like a cork in a bottle, if you will. Um, and so in that sense, if Taiwan were to fall, uh, the People's Republic of China and the People's Liberation Army and their Navy and Air Force and all the military that comes with it would have this uh, unfettered access to the, to the Pacific Ocean. And while... Some people may say that we don't have anything to worry about on the American West Coast or in Hawaii. Uh, I would say that's not necessarily true. may not be a, an issue in, in the next five to ten years, uh, but China is certainly seeking to expand their, their military presence even to the West Coast. Uh, but more importantly, uh, by taking Taiwan from a military perspective, it essentially threatens our number one ally and trading partner uh, in the Pacific which is Japan. And Japan at that point would be essentially surrounded uh, by China and by Russia, China in the south and Russia on the north. And we've already seen this week uh, Chinese and Russian uh, Navy vessels, 10 ships operating uh, encircled around uh, Japan and went through the Sugaro Strait, which is up near Hokkaido, and then came down the east coast of, of Japan. And if the Chinese were able to have basing in Taiwan, where they could fly fighters and bombers uh, and home port their submarines and surface uh, warships, uh, that they would have a much more readily uh, available uh, avenue of attack against uh, Japan. And they also certainly would then be able to pressurize uh, our other ally, 
uh, in the region, the Philippines, by surrounding Luzon, the, the, the northern portion of the Philippines, clearly, and pressure them from the north and, again, from the east. Uh, so this is, uh, you know, Taiwan is kind of the centerpiece in terms of geography and helping the People's Republic of China and the Chinese Communist Party achieve their goal, uh, their strategic goal of displacing the United States as the world's superpower, if you will, and making China the world's sole superpower. And that includes driving the United States out of Asia. And why that would matter to somebody in the United States, somebody in California and New York or in Oklahoma or North Dakota or Georgia, why that matters to them is because your uh, entire existence, uh, the, the economy that we have today is intertwined with China. Uh, and part of that is uh, their ability to be able to control uh, the timing and scope and scale of what gets shipped everywhere. You're seeing it right now on our coasts where we're having these backlogs of ships. Well, China could be able to control that from their end with a much greater uh, ability if they were able to take Taiwan. Uh, there's an economic reason beyond what I just described in terms of this kind of global trading system where China's navy and its ability to impact who gets to trade and sell, uh, which the Chinese have said, if they have control of the first island chain and can control what comes in and out, uh, not just military warships, but commercial vessels, uh, then they're going to have an ability to control the global economy. And one of the areas that's really important to China is the island of Taiwan and their semiconductor industry. And, you know, the statistics are out there that Taiwan produces on the order of 90% of the world's most advanced uh, semiconductor chips that go into everything that we use, from the computers that we're sitting in front of today to speak on this podcast, the things that help us drive our cars, whether they're gas-powered or electric cars. More, more likely, uh, more chips are needed for electric cars. And everything else that runs our, our, uh, our, our economy. And so uh, the idea that uh, that chipset would then fall under the hands of manufacturing base would fall into the hands of the PRC gives the People's Republic of China essentially a lock on everything in terms of the way we live our lives. You know, you have light switches, you have um, uh, the Internet of Things, uh, smart televisions, smart uh, 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 home equipment, home uh, uh, you know, things in your kitchen, uh, uh, locks, uh, security systems, the things that control uh, trains and airplanes, that control air traffic control systems, that control uh, fuel, energy systems, uh, control, uh, the, you know, the banking system. Everything runs on these semiconductors. And if China is able to control and have that, those factories in Taiwan, which they would like to be able to capture intact as much as they can, uh, this then has China in the catbird seat economically. And then there's a kind of a, an, an information warfare diplomatic uh, a, a idea. Um, let's just take in, in the diplomatic side of it. If Taiwan were to fall, then all those nations, the remaining 15 nations that recognize, uh, that currently recognize Taiwan as, as, the, as, as the legitimate representative of the one China and not the People's Republic of China, uh, the day that the PRC were to take Taiwan, those 15 nations would automatically either have no vote in, in the UN or they would then become, uh, they would become, you know, recognizing the People's Republic of China, which would then bolster the PRC's already uh, enormous amount of clout and influence that they have in the United Nations. And as a Security Council member, they they already get to veto anything that they don't really like, but they also move in other ways, not just through the, the raw power of a veto over the other members of the Security Council. They also influence the way the UN operates, the way things are, standards are set, uh, the way things are, uh, you know, standards of, of production, standards of uh, like healthcare, and the, the fact that we're, many people are wearing masks today are being set in because of the influence of the PRC inside the World Health Organization, which is a part of the UN. And so 
the idea that Taiwan would fall would give the PRC even more power to essentially mandate, dictate uh, to the rest of the world whatever they wanted. Uh, and so if you don't like wearing masks or you don't want to take a vaccine or you don't want your kids that's five years old to have to take a vaccine, well, then you should care about what happens to Taiwan. And then lastly, it's in the information arena, which is this idea that, uh, you know, Taiwan is a democracy. Taiwan is free. Uh, Taiwan has a free press, a very robust and diverse and, uh, you know, uh, growing uh free press and people get to debate things and have conversation and dialogue and they don't cancel each other out just because they disagree with somebody. Uh, and that's going to change if the PRC were to take Taiwan and there would be less criticism, less exposure about what the PRC is doing, for instance, in Xinjiang and how they're, you know, keeping a million plus Uyghur Muslims in concentration camps, essentially. Uh, what's going on in Tibet? What's going on in Hong Kong? The Taiwan press is, and because we've seen in this last year, two years, uh, the Chinese have you know started really cracking down on a free press, uh, kicking out Western journalists. Uh, they just put out a list uh, in the last uh, week, week and a half, that talked about uh, you know what are the approved uh, media outlets, and they really just dramatically cut down what is allowed to be put on their internet, which is behind what they call the Great Firewall. So the internet that we all use in America and Europe and the rest of the world and the access to anything virtually, that's not true in, in the People's Republic of China. And if they are to take Taiwan, that will ensure that information is even more controlled by China and this, you know, one world view gets pumped out in their their view of it. And dissenting voices will be squelched and there will not be any more dissenting voices in Taiwan. And we're, and, and I say that because we already have seen that happen in Hong Kong in the last year and a half. And if China were to take the, the island of Taiwan and militarily occupy it, they would have that control. So in these kind of four main arenas of the military, economics, diplomacy, and information warfare, uh, that's the reason why Americans should care about what happens to Taiwan, because it will affect those four elements of your life back in the States. Make a really convincing case there. I think there's a real deep skepticism of globalism among a lot of Americans. There's this kind of strain of isolationism running through the country right now. And you can, it's understandable given, you know, we've just witnessed the with disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan and these, where the, the United States sacrifices in parts of the world, um, and for seemingly no reason, right? So let's say just to play devil's advocate and and just oversimplify things a lot. All right, Japan recognizing the economic significance. What if we just brought everything home and we're able to create semiconductors in the United States and produce things here and just defend ourselves? Why is it important for us to maintain? these allies and to, um, and to defend them? Well, I think, I mean, there's a moral reason just from, I mean, from a purely moralistic standpoint, which is to say, you know, if you see people that have done nothing wrong and are just wanting to live a life where they can live and let live and you, and, and, you know, 23 million people in, in Taiwan, and then you see a, a, you know, a communist nation like the PRC come in and basically put all these people in prison that's not right, uh, just on the face of it. And then secondly, who's to say when that stops? What's the next country that they go after? What's the next country? What are their intentions for everybody else? If they can't stand Taiwan speaking out against them, will they stand it in America? Uh, and so maybe they're going to come and try to silence Americans. Now, that won't happen overnight. But but the idea is, is that it's a slippery slope when you start turning away from evil you know, Edmund Burke said, evil flourishes when good people do nothing and stay silent. And so if we stay silent in the face of this, that doesn't mean that it won't continue to grow and gain strength. We had to, we had to, unfortunately, you know, twice in the 20th century, go to Europe here where I'm at right now. And the United States had to essentially expend its blood to make sure that the evils of uh, what the, you know, the first world war was about and the Germans, and then 
obviously Nazi Germany and Hitler in World War II. And I think what's happened in America, uh, and there's a lot smarter people than me that have written about this, but essentially we, we, for the last 30 years, we've kind of gotten away from great power competition. Uh, we were attacked on 9-11, but before 9-11 in you know, uh, 2001, we had already been in the Middle East for a decade fighting in Iraq. Uh, this is the 30th anniversary of Desert Storm this year. Um, we're in the 30th year of that anniversary year. Remembrance. It's not an anniversary that I want to celebrate, but for 30 years, the United States has been, I would say, diverted. I have not just been saying it now. I've been saying it throughout my career. Uh, you know, we fought the, the Germans in World War One. We fought the Nazis in World War Two. Um, we fought a Cold War against the Soviet Union. These were great power existential threats. And because the Soviet Union had collapsed, you know, ostensibly, according to the, you know, the wall came down and we all said, ah, the Soviet Union's gone away. There's nothing that's going to challenge America. Francis Fukuyama said, you know, it's the, it's democracy's going to go around the world and there's nothing else to challenge the United States and our view, worldview. And then when we got the first challenge to it in, in 9-11, we, we, we just devoted all of our resources to saying, oh, we have to do everything in the Middle East. And then we have this idea of endless wars that we're talking about here with Afghanistan in the last year or so. And so I think in a sense, uh, people of a you know, younger generation than me are rightly saying, you know, why do I want to go fight again? I just spent the last 30 years fighting in the Middle East. Why do I want to go fight in the Pacific? And I think there's a fundamental difference. And I know some people will say, oh, he's just a retired military guy and he just wants to go to war. And, and, and I, can't, I, I won't change your mind if you think that way. But I, from my perspective and what I did in my career and the people that I work with is that we were trying to raise the flag over this last 30 years to say, yes, making sure terrorists don't attack America is important, but it shouldn't be the dominant uh, military uh, strategy and outlook that we have as a nation. And that's what we did for 30 years. Uh, you know, I was in the Pacific, I was out in Japan, and our requirements, our views of what was going on uh, were, were put on the back burner because what was popular in Washington and in the, in the people that were in the, you know, the D.C. arena and the think tanks and the Beltway we're always telling us we got to fight the terrorists in the Middle East. We got to fight the terrorists in the Middle East. And and what happened to the Department of Defense and the Pentagon was is they devoted almost all of our resources to that, and we ignored a great power that was rising, China. And this power now has not only the second largest economy in the world, and it's growing. Not only does it control the means of production for most of the world's products that we get, that we have. You can't go into a store anywhere. I can't even go into a store and buy a Swiss fondue pot without six out of seven of them being made in China. I mean, this is incredible in just a scope of 30 years. China's become the world's producer of everything. We are dependent upon them. And so um, we, we, we ignored that, that economic threat. We ignored the military threat. In fact, in D.C. and the Beltway, the think tanks all said there was no military threat for the last 20 years. And now they're just admitting it. But what we saw China do in the last six months is build 350 nuclear ICBM silos. They just tested a hypersonic missile that traveled around the world that can, you know, it, it, it can defeat the United States missile defense systems as they currently exist. They have the world's largest navy that has the best anti-ship cruise missiles that have longer range, fly supersonic, while our ships are trying to backfit subsonic systems uh, that are still, you know, years behind, maybe decades behind in terms of Chinese quality and capability. And so we, we ignored that threat for 30 years because we were fixated on this, this issue with, you know, the, the wars in the desert. And we got, it, it got out of hand. We, 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 we poured in trillions of dollars. What's the number? Three, four, five trillion dollars over a 30-year period. And we were trying to rebuild the nation there. And there was all this reconstruction and all kinds of crazy things. And we got away from 
No, the reason you have a military is to do one thing. It's to fight and it's to deter your enemies. And if you don't deter them, to fight them and to beat them and to kill them. And then when you kill them, you come home like we did in World War I, like we did in World War II, like we did in Korea. Even in Vietnam, which we lost, we still came home. And what we didn't do in, uh, and, and people will say, no, we didn't. We, and I know I was stationed in Japan for four years at two different times. Uh, yeah, I was stationed there, but we weren't fighting a war. And it was a total war that we had pacified uh, the Japanese and the Germans. And after 80 years, it was a, a new new world. And I think that kind of thinking was used in the Middle East to say, well, if we can do this in, in uh, Europe with the, the army being stationed there and the Navy Sixth Fleet, and we can do it in the Western Pacific with the, the Seventh Fleet, that, well, we can try to do the same thing in Afghanistan. But I don't think it was well thought out. It wasn't an existential threat that said we were going to be attacked like we were in World War II. So from my, my assessment is, is that we, we have numbed ourselves down because of this 30 years in the Middle East and the sand. And now we're in kind of an, in a collective, well, I don't want to fight anybody. At the, at the very moment when we need to gear up and man up and be prepared uh, for what's coming from China. And if we don't do that, then we might as well say that we want to live like the Chinese are going to tell us to live because they're going to control that. Right. Well, there's a fair amount of people ready to, to say that at this point. The other argument I've seen um, floating around is that there's no upside. If we're too supportive of Taiwan, we'll be drawn into World War III and we'll probably lose. There was a report yesterday, um, CNN talked about it, many other outlets reported on it as well, that in a war game, the United States did not win a conflict um, between in, in defending Taiwan, um, would you agree that that there's no? I mean, if we did decide to defend Taiwan and, and be involved, that we would lose. Well, I think that's uh, you know, there's these reports of these war games that have that have been leaked both during the Trump administration at the towards the end, and now this one this week. Uh, yeah, I've been somebody that said, you know, I've been banging the drum to say, watch out, China's military is very serious, and we need to be prepared. To, to to deter it or to defeat it. And we're in a bad situation. We're in a bad place right now. But that still doesn't mean we give up because the alternative is what? The alternative is to live like they're living in Hong Kong right now, where you can't go out and say whatever you want without fear of going to jail in Hong Kong, let alone what's happening in Tibet or Xinjiang. I mean, uh, this is the kind of world that we're going to live in. The, the, look at the measures that are being in, in, inflicted upon us as Americans uh, over this virus, the virus from the PRC. We're, we're, we're not able to, for a year and a half, go out of our houses in, in many places. We, we are told we have to wear one, two, three, four masks. We're told that children have to sit in school and wear masks for eight hours a day. Yet my wife is a school teacher and taught for the last five years, six years here in Switzerland. And in this last year and a half, uh, they weren't wearing masks in, in classes in Switzerland, and we had no outbreaks. Teachers aren't falling over. Children aren't dying. Um, so why is it that these measures are being inflicted upon us? Uh, there's a lot there, and it's a lot of domestic stuff that I know this we're not here to talk about. But I want to submit is that the things that you're seeing in the United States are a reflection of the kind of governmental, global governance, as Xi Jinping calls it, that will go to the rest of the world. This is the world they want. They want a world where there's no individualism, we're all in a collective, and there's no right to speak out and say what you want. You know, we had somebody in the last week say, you don't have the right to murder me, okay? So you have no freedoms under that kind of thinking. That thinking is dangerous, and it's anti-American. It's anti uh, the inalienable rights that are codified in our uh, Declaration and Constitution. And so the Chinese government and what they stand for is one, 180 degrees out. It's anathema to what's written down in our 
Declaration and Constitution, which are just repres- uh, you know, just codification of what these people that wrote these documents said is the the human rights of all mankind. You know, the the Bill of Rights, uh, the right to free speech, the right to assembly, the right to have your free religion, the right to defend yourself, the right to have, uh, you know, freedom from being searched by your government. All these rights, these are not just for Americans. These are for every human on the earth. And China doesn't want those rights. They don't honor those rights. They don't respect those rights. The only thing that has a right in China is the party. And if the party says you will do this, there's no alternative. You must do what they say. And that's creeping into America, and it should scare people. And so, therefore, if Taiwan were to fall, Taiwan to be taken, you're, you're essentially saying and, and acknowledging in a way that you're accepting that this will happen to the United States. And I think that's worth fighting for. So you're not just fighting for the people of Taiwan. You're fighting for your own freedom and your children's freedom and your grandchildren's freedom. So, Jim, you make a bunch of great points explaining why Taiwan is worth defending and why the U.S. should defend it, both militarily, economically, politically, strategically, geographically. All these are reasons that Taiwan is worth fighting and defending from the U.S. perspective. So if you were president for a day or commanding the U.S. military more generally, what would you do from a U.S. perspective to help defend the people of Taiwan? Well, um, I think, you know, I've, I've, there's many people that have been talking about it in the last year, but I think the first thing we need to do and say is that we're not going to be ambiguous about our defense of China, Taiwan anymore. Uh, we've had a policy of strategic ambiguity. So in that sense, it, you know, and I, you know, uh, President Biden last week in that town hall when asked, would, he def- would we come to the defense of Taiwan, instinctively said yes. And then several hours later, the White House said, well, that's not exactly true. We haven't changed our policy of strategic ambiguity. I think we need to end that. I think we need to have strategic clarity and let China know, hey, just like they tell us, you know, this is my red line. This, I, And I'm not suggesting we say a red line. We just say we're standing with Taiwan. We're standing with freedom and liberty. And we're standing against your worldview of global governance. Um, and that's the, you know, that's one element, uh, in terms of, uh, what we could do most immediately and where we still have a great amount of strength is in the economic arena. And we were down that road with president Trump with the tariffs, even before the virus started, we, he was in, you know, uh, had a series of tariffs that were hurting the Chinese economy. And I think, that could be done a lot more, but we're also disarming ourselves right now and our economy's in not great shape. We're printing money and all, hyperinflation and all those things are going on, which essentially has taken away one of our major tools. And so we have to get back to work. We have to stop printing money. We have to stop spending so much on our federal government uh, in the areas that don't produce anything that directly helps people survive. And we need to get our economy back in shape like it was a year and a half ago, two years ago, and, and and start really holding China to account economically with tariffs, more tariffs, uh, isolate them. And we should uh, continue this the trend that Trump had started, which was to pressurize, not through mandates or executive orders, but through you know rhetoric, pressurizing corporations to get out of China and move their production out of China which would help diminish China's economic strength and power, to decouple. Uh, And that won't happen overnight, but moving towards a true policy of decoupling uh, would send the right signals to China that if they don't back off, their their power base, the power base of the, the Chinese Communist Party is their economic growth. And what happens if China's economic growth starts to really sputter and slow down beyond what they've told their people? This issue with this Evergrande, uh, and what's happening with Jack Ma going missing. I mean, there are serious problems in China economically. And I still think they are very resilient, but let's push on that. You know, let's push on their economic pillar and weaken them because that's going to cause the party to question. Because if the people of China all of a sudden realize that they're, um, this, what they've been told that they're going to have, you know, increased uh, wealth and capacity and, and have a better life than their families or their forefathers did, 
Uh, and if they see that that's not going to happen because the Chinese Communist Party lied to them, uh, that puts the party at risk of being overthrown internally. So let's push on that. Militarily, uh, we need to devote more resources to the Pacific. You know, everybody in the in Washington, well, not everybody, I shouldn't use that term, but a lot of people in Washington, especially over the Trump years, were saying that the Russia was the number one threat to America. And, and there's a lot of people that said that's not true. Uh, you know, Robert O'Brien, the former national security advisor, and, and, and others have said clearly that's not true. China is the real threat. And so we need to balance our forces, not balance them. We need to, we, you know, under the Obama years, they talked about a 60-40 split of the U.S. Navy. It used to be 50-50. 50% of the Navy was in the Pacific, 50% in the Atlantic. And then the uh, Obama said, gave out this phrase 60-40, which never was realized, but they talked about it. We need to realize maybe 70-30. And so we need to bring out more resources, more stuff for deployed. We have, uh, uh, we have to arm up Taiwan. We have to make Taiwan what they call, a, a Commander Bill Murray wrote about in 2008, we have to make Taiwan a porcupine. We have to arm it with missile systems that would be able to shoot down uh, PRC air forces. We have to have uh, anti-ballistic uh, missile batteries in Taiwan that can shoot down uh, the strategic rocket forces, incoming missile batteries. I would say that Taiwan also needs to have, uh, you know, land attack missiles that can attack the mainland of China so that t China has to worry about what happens if people in China that only have for the last 30 years, it's changed, but for the most part, they're in a society with a single child in the family. What happens to those families when their uh, cities are attacked and their only sons or daughters are killed and they have no heritage, and they have no follow-on family. That's that's going to cause some problems. So put those in Taiwan and make make the Chinese Communist Party and the PLA have to go back to the drawing board and recalculate their plan because they're constantly planning, they're constantly reorienting. And for the most part, for the last 20 years, the intelligentsia in Washington has told China, hey, you don't have to worry, we'll never attack your mainland. Well, I why did we tell them that? Why did why was that taken off the table? That should never be off the table. They should have to worry about it. Uh, if 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 we need to put nukes on Taiwan, I think we need to look at that as well. We need to make Beijing understand that we're all in, and that if they cross that line, it's not just a bluff. That we're really all in, and everything that they've planned for, everything that they've hoped for, will be shattered in a nanosecond. Thank you for listening to today's show. Not Cleared is a project of the Center for Security Policy. We want to hear from you, so please email us at questions at notcleared.org so we can get in touch with you. <laughs>